podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we talk about the greatest wicket-taker of all time, Murali. Coming from a nation that before him, few really took any notice of, he took this small island and made them a force in international cricket. So I got on a Murali expert to discuss this. Hello, I'm Andrew Fidel Fernando. I'm uh, ESPN Cricket Info's Sri Lanka correspondent. On this episode, we talk about chucking, legacy, films, cricket politics, Sri Lankan politics, Jaffna, and when the Sri Lankan Cricket Board wanted white scientists. So I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I was there when Murali was called at the MCG. I mean, you'd be shocked to know that I was at the MCG. For, I mean, I was probably at the MCG for every event that happened in cricket. When you're living under the, the seats there for a while when you were a teenager, I'm sure it's, I heard that in one of your pieces. Pretty much. So I was there for uh, most of the big events. And I still remember the confusion. There's only one other moment I can remember. I think I was at a one day at England Island when someone stood on the stumps and, you know, because it was England Island, I don't think there was a good TV screen and no one could quite work out why this person had been dismissed for a little while. That was the only other time I can remember, like, the sound of thousands of people at once going, what's happening? Why is everyone upset? It was such a weird moment to be in the ground, especially because Bay 13, as it was known, was essentially chanting at that point over and over again for the no ball, even yeah. before and yeah. after. <laughs> and so we couldn't quite work it out. You have a much different story of how you saw it. You were back in Sri Lanka at the time with your family. Is that right? Yeah. So I remember, I mean, this is right, really the first cricket memory I had, the first memory, the first time I really felt like, I think I, up until that point, I think I was about seven. Cricket was something that was played around me, but I didn't really take that much of interest. It hadn't really kind of caught me. My father was a cricket fan, but not like a cricket nut. Like he would watch it, but it wasn't like a huge part of his life. But then I just remember waking up like pretty early um, on Boxing Day morning and my father just like absolutely fuming at the TV. And the interesting thing was like this came at a time when like I was used to seeing adults fume at the TV because <laughs> there was a war going on, right? And seeing my parents and other adults being like shocked and like looking at the TV in disbelief, just absolutely, you know. Uh, having this very these very strong emotional responses to what was going on the TV was a very normal part of like growing up. This was the first time it was for anything other than like a news report. This was like for cricket, and then it was like the moment when I think I realized, okay, this is serious. There's something here that I hadn't taken into account. I thought it was just a game that people played that I hadn't really taken into account about its importance. And then in the following days, like you know, we'd go and visit family. Um, around Christmas time, and uh, especially my mother's family because they're Catholic. And, uh, you know, this was the thing that was talked about that year. Morley getting no ball at the MCG. I mean, Sri Lanka lost that match by, I don't know, like a billion runs or something. It didn't matter. It like the only thing, there was not, no talk about the performance or the cricket or how well or how badly they were doing. It was just about Daryl Hare and Muttai Morley Dharan and how he shouldn't be allowed to do that. Everyone's just incensed. And uh, I'd never seen that amount of passion and anger and frustration from Sri Lankan adults for anything other than the war at that point. And uh, I think so that was kind of like this kind of awakening about cricket in me, just suddenly just being like this thing that should demand my attention. And I think it was probably the first time I really took cricket seriously. 
And from a cricket point of view, it's quite interesting too, because quite often in the history of Test cricket, if someone is suspected to be a chucker, no one says anything until they start to take wickets, whereas Murali wasn't about to take a bunch of wickets, even though he's probably more suited to Australian conditions than most finger spinners, because he's kind of a wrist finger spinner. Even then, he wasn't looking like he was about to rip through them or anything. So it was kind of, it kind of came from nowhere. And it took him from a position of, you know, there's that funny story where Alan Border couldn't work out if he was a leg spinner or an off spinner, I think, on a previous tour. And then suddenly he's just the center of the cricketing universe. And he's also the center of the Sri Lankan universe at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had played in Australia before. So he'd taken wickets. And I guess chucking was kind of at the time and still is in, in many ways seen as like a moral issue. And it's always been like the story of kind of Murali's being called in Australia has been about like specific umpires making it a a point to go after him. So it was something that umpires had come into the game thinking about and wanting to do and wanting to take a stand because they believed that, you know, he was throwing the ball. In terms of Sri Lanka, yeah, I mean, he wasn't an outstanding player at that point by any means. He was a promising spinner. He turned the ball a lot, which people liked, but like, Beyond that, he wasn't, no one at that point would have thought that he would go on to have the career that he ended up having. He was just a a reasonably decent kind of halfway decent off spinner. And so it didn't really matter though. The way it was seen in Sri Lanka was that one of ours is being unfairly targeted in Australia. And there was no reason for us to think that. I mean, for all we knew, he was actually chucking. There was no data. (laughs) There was no knowledge about like the, the vagaries of his action, the way his elbow worked, the way his shoulder worked. The way that, you know, the 2D image of Murali Bowling can can create an optical illusion. None of that information was available to anyone. This was just pure jingoism from Sri Lanka, like absolute, unadulterated, going to a white country that I think is significant. Also, you know, Sri Lankans didn't like the amount of sledging and all the other stuff that Australians were doing at the time. And then just having this like purely nationalistic reaction that Murali was being strung up in front of like this huge Australian crowd, the likes of which we never see for any sport in Sri Lanka. So I think that was the reaction was like uh, just out of like pure anger without really a lot of facts or a lot of nuance on either side. I think certainly on the Sri Lankan side, there wasn't at that stage a lot of understanding of what was actually going on. I think to be fair, Melbourne is a de facto home game for Sri Lanka as well, which might have also. <laughs> there were, yeah. I remember how many Sri Lankan fans there were there for that test. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to remember that we think of Sri Lanka as where they are now, as a team that's, you know, won a couple of titles and, you know, is a normal cricket nation. But realistically, in 1995-96, at this point, they hadn't won the World Cup. They were essentially an associate team. They didn't get the respect that probably they deserved. You know, I think it was it Peter Roebuck who wrote that they had a real chance of winning the 96 World Cup and everyone sort of went, what's he sniffing? There yeah. was no respect. And then the other thing about that mid-90s period of Sri Lankan cricket was that the country was in the middle of this incredible turmoil, so much so that you'll remember the details. Was it Australia or New Zealand refused to play in Sri Lanka during the 96 World Cup? It, it was Australian West Indies, yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, not for awful reasons. I mean, Sri Lanka had this, like, dev- I think it was in February, might have been January, that there was this huge attack on the, the central bank when something like 1,400 people were injured and almost 100 people were killed. There were genuine, genuine security concerns. It's not like, they pulled. But of course, as a kid, I remember that period just being like Australia, you know, that kind of hate for Australia, like really calcifying during that period because they'd gone to Australia and really been called. There was another thing with like, there were ball tampering allegations out of a match in Perth, which the Sri Lanka team rejected. 
And so like Sri Lanka had gone to Australia and had this like tour where they just felt besieged from all sides. And the country was just like, at least my part of the country was just absolutely livid at Australia. And then these Australians have the nerve to not show up to their World Cup game. And so like that was kind of like then going on to the, the World Cup and the final and everything. It was kind of like this moment of like great catharsis. And it was like this crazy nationalistic narrative that we built around the cricket. So yeah, there was so much going on at the time. I mean, I remember after that bomb blast that we talked about on the Central Bank, which was in January 1996, two months before Australia were due to come for their game, schools were shut for weeks. Like we didn't go to school. I mean, it was a serious thing in Sri Lanka. There was genuine serious security concerns. So I don't blame Australia for what they did, though. There were kind of some comments from, you know, Shane Warne and whatever that didn't help. But it's not outlandish that Australia didn't come and that West Indies didn't come. They didn't feel safe there and they had reasons not to. So what I'm trying to point out is that it's a similar sort of situation when you look at the fans and where they were at at that time to what Bangladeshi fans probably quite often feel now, that kind of the world is against them, that everyone hates them, whereas in actual fact, it's more that they're being ignored and that no one really cares that much. And then how Sri Lanka changed that was by winning that World Cup, obviously. But Murali then comes along at that perfect time. Had he come along 10 years earlier, he probably wouldn't have had the impact that he would have needed because the team wasn't ready. Whereas by the time he comes along, you've got someone like Aravinda De Silva, who's a proper test match batsman. You've got other solid players around. Obviously, his next generation is going to get two incredible batsmen. He's going to have the best wicketkeeper in the world for a period of time there as well. Like Just incredible pieces around him. Chaminda Vast as well. But let's go back to early Murali. He's not a poor person, is he? His family uh, were business owners, weren't they? His family history is really interesting and kind of quite complicated. His family comes from what we call the Malaya Tamils or upcountry Tamils uh, community, which is kind of one of the, the most recent arrivals to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka's kind of had waves of migration from everywhere because of its place in the in the Indian Ocean. And uh, his his community is one of the poorest or is maybe almost certainly the poorest uh, ethnic community because they work in plantations in, in terrible conditions. But his own personal family kind of got out of that. His uh, his father and his uncle uh, started a biscuit factory and they kind of built it up by selling it out of the back of trucks to other estate workers in the hill country and then became like quite a successful business. And now Murali's family is very, very well off. I mean, through the course of his life, they've become wealthier and wealthier, helped in no small part by his, his international career. But he was he always grew up in wealth, yeah, for sure. He was he used kind of the, the term he was a new rich kind of kid. Yeah. So he was richer, but because of uh, you know, his family being Tamil and those sort of connections, his father was assaulted and his father's business was did they try and burn down the, the factory or something? Yeah, so there was a separatist Tamil movement at the time kind of just starting in the north and the east of Sri Lanka. So northern and eastern Tamils who had largely been in Sri Lanka for millennia, unlike Morley's community who'd come over the last 150, 200 years. These Tamils had been in Sri Lanka for at least a few hundred years, some going back as, as far as, as a couple of thousand years. So much more established Tamil communities in the, in the country. And out of those communities and the, the grievances they felt at, at the Sri Lankan state, which was largely Sinhalese, they were just beginning to produce this violent separatist movement, right? And in 1977, there was a backlash against these separatist forces or separatist elements in, in Sri Lanka from the south. So there were kind of mobs going around towns, burning Tamil businesses, burning Tamil houses, 
attacking them and attacking Hamas. The interesting thing is, for a brief period in time, the Malaya Tamil community and aspects of the northern and eastern Tamils were kind of in concert with each other. They were working together, but they never kind of really shared this vision of separatism. Either they never shared it or they were never brought into that kind of vision by the northern and eastern Tamils who were kind of leading that political struggle, right? So for Malaya Tamils, it's always been more about economic concerns. Um, how do they in- increase wages and living conditions? and working conditions for estate workers and for for Tamils living in the hill country. So they've kind of had these divergent political aims, I guess. And so Malaya Tamils have never been like pushing hard, as a political force anyway, pushing hard on the separatism stuff. And what happened in 1977 was that there were Sinhalese-led attacks on Tamils because of the separatist actions in the north and the east, but because... All Tamils were just seen as Tamils, as blanket Tamils. Murali's factory and his home got attacked. And his father, I think there was like a, a, there's still a 12-inch scar across his father's back from where he got cut by a a sword or a knife. can't remember exactly what it was, but he he was cut up like pretty badly, had to be hospitalized during that assault. And then the the, the biscuit factory was burned down. So Murali has like some, you know, he's, the Tamil experience in Sri Lanka is to be kind of discriminated against. Murali does have those kinds of stories from his past. And obviously that would be incredibly traumatic for anybody, for any family to go to. I think Murali was five or six at the time, not very old at all. And so that did happen to him. And that's kind of part of his story. And it kind of reflects where he came from. And and you can see why the, the person he became eventually kind of is informed by the context that he grew up in. With all that, and from that period, and the mid-90s was obviously another incredibly full-on period in Sri Lankan history. When he starts to get good, what actually happens within Sri Lankan society? Do Sri Lankan cricket fans compartmentalise the fact that he is a Tamil? Or does it not matter because you've never had the best player in the world in any particular position before and he is at least as good as Warren, if not at times far better than Warren? That's a really interesting question. And I'll put a caveat on this and say, personally, I was you know quite young when during the 90s when this was happening, so my understanding of it may not be as full as it, as it might be. But just going back and kind of thinking about that period and, and what I've read about um, that period in, in uh, Sri Lankan history and how Murali was related to, he didn't make any kind of political moves during the 90s, right? He was playing for the team. I don't remember there ever being antagonism towards him because he was a Tamil. I think part of it is compartmentalization, as you said. Part of the, sing- the, the southern kind of Sinhalese nationalist argument has always been that Tamils have no problems here. Tamils have no grievances in Sri Lanka. You're allowed to be part of our society. And Murali kind of was held up as an example of, well, look, this guy is playing for our team. How can Tamils be claiming that they have grievances? Obviously, that's a very kind of narrow and flawed argument. But because he, in in some ways, he was even to like the most like kind of anti-Tamil people in our society, there was kind of a, a political expediency to him being part of that team. And also because he was in that period of his career, for sure, very apolitical. He spoke Sinhala because uh, he grew up in Kandy, which anyway is, is a pretty Sinhala-speaking region. He would have you know, spoken Sinhala through his schooling, certainly while he started playing. He tells stories about how you know he shared rooms with Sinhalese players, and I'm paraphrasing here, where he learned what Sinhalese people were like. 
where he was like, you know, Sinhalese people are kind of very emotional and, and uh, are very quick to take offense or whatever. And I guess like to some extent he went out of his way to not create offense during that time. You know, those things are all on the record. You can find those kind of interviews. I think he said that to our Ashwin actually recently uh, during the, the lockdown chat. So yeah, he's had kind of that journey of being a Tamil and like he's never not owned his Tamilness. He's never been like, oh, I'm less Tamil. People can sometimes accuse him of that. But I don't think that that's true. He's always been like, I'm a Tamil, but I'm a Sri Lankan first. So he would say, which in itself is a political position to take in the context of Sri Lankan politics, to say you're a Sri Lankan first and then a Tamil. Because I don't think many Sinhalese would you know, necessarily say I'm a Sri Lankan first and then a Sinhalese if kind of the, the roles of minorities and majorities were, were flipped. And certainly many Tamils wouldn't say that. So um, that in itself is a political position, but he's never kind of distanced himself from his Tamils. He speaks it very well. There's a story of him going to the north after the tsunami and then because that the northern area was controlled by the LTTE a lot of people had to fill out uh, forms and the, the forms had been filled out in Tamil and there was kind of a, a Tamil speaking journalist who was going up with him and the Tamil speaking journalist doesn't read or write Tamil and Murali had to fill out his form and Murali kind of like being like what kind of Tamil are you that you can't even write your own language kind of like just like gently chastising this journalist, it wasn't like a serious thing, but like just a, a, a gentle undressing. So it's not like Murali's ever been anti-Tamil or distanced himself from that aspect of his, his identity. But he never really like threw it out there in, in kind of ways that the southern polity in Sri Lanka would be aggravated in any way either. He just kind of went about his game just to play cricket. And at the time, I mean, he was a pretty meek character, you know, even within the cricket team wasn't necessarily the most kind of boisterous person that he later became or didn't have the, I guess he became more confident in his public image later on as, as time went on and his kind of wicket ball grew and he became this kind of record-breaking bowler. But in the 90s, he kind of flew under the radar in terms of like his personality and his engagement in anything other than what was going on in the cricket field was very minimal. Was it 1998 when Sri Lanka realised that he was one of the best players in the world at the Oval Test or was it before then? So I think because he turned the ball so much and then he kind of like, he went through a phase in his career where he was picked because he turned the ball a lot. And then that turn became like even more kind of aggressive and more kind of sharp through the mid nineties, through 96, you know, 96, 97, 98. There was something that was happening either in his technique or in his body that allowed him to just get progressively more turn year on year. And then 1998, that oval test is a fascinating game because Sri Lanka had spent I think something like a month and a half playing, you know, lots of county games in the approach to this one-off oval test that they had against England. And they knew going into it that, you know, it's a late season England pitch. They probably didn't realize that Morley was going to be like the only weapon to an extent that they had. And they probably didn't expect him to be quite as good. But Arjun Aranthunga had backed Morley from a long time. Like Arjun Aranthunga was someone who could like pick players and then, like, he just backed them until they kind of realized his potential. He did it with Sanat Jaisuria as well, as, as another one that he did with, you know, Arvind de Silva's late career kind of bloom to some extent is down to kind of Arjun Ranathunga backing him and, and kind of managing him really well. Murali, for sure, was someone that Arjuna saw a lot of potential in. And then he kind of, like, that whole strategy was based around Murali to a, a smaller extent, Vas, but it was based around the fact that Murali is going to get a lot of wickets in the back end of this test and he's going to like really have to wheedle these batsmen out 
over a long period of overs and he's going to need to rest in mid between. So we don't want to get into a situation where we're like, you know, having to consider to enforce or not enforce a follow on. And I think England were very thrilled with, with Sri Lanka's decision to, to bowl first in that match because everyone knew it was a really flat wicket and it was a flat wicket. It was arguably a flat wicket even going into the fourth innings. People don't talk about this a lot, but one of the best combinations of cricketers you can have in your bowling attack is a left arm seamer and a off spinner because of the footmarks and the way that they affect right-hand batsmen. I remember I was talking to a county player recently about an off-spinner having a good season, and he said, yeah, but that was because they had uh, an overseas bowler that year who was a left-armer. Like, he literally said, this guy couldn't bowl, and then one season he had the footmark. I, I just well, I just want to bring that up because it's such an important thing yeah. that we never talk about, but those footmarks mean that even from early in a game, Murali has a little bit of an advantage over other kinds of spinners because of the bowling attack. Unfortunately for him, I think Chimindavas is maybe a little bit too dainty to really dig up a pitch you want a Dougie Bollinger <laughs> don't you don't yeah. Manus, one of the big hefty guys if, if you really yeah, get or, it or a Stark or someone who like yeah. really puts his foot into the pitch <laughs> yeah I mean I think that's a fascinating point because the other thing is like Vass was a creating footmarks and b just created pressure to an extreme yeah. extent at times like he was so miserly that like morally just had this perfect foil who was like doing things with both his hand and his foot that made Morley so much greater a threat, especially at the start of his career where Morley did need later on in his career um, when he wasn't turning his off break as much and he didn't need to kind of beat right-handers. He beat right-handers with the Dustra often. So yeah. later on in his career, he probably didn't need Vass, but in that like formative period of his, of his career, those foot marks were really big for him because then at that point, he was all about that big turn, all about like, beating batsmen on the inside, beating right-handed batsmen on the inside edge. So, yeah, that's a fantastic point. Something that, yeah, I, even I hadn't really thought about how perfect that was. Talking about perfect, you are also a very interesting person because obviously you are Sri Lankan, but you spend a lot of your time in New Zealand. So you're Sri Lankan, New Zealand or New Zealand, Sri Lankan. You can decide on uh, which order of that. Uh, I know which one you'll choose, but I just want to do it to annoy you, really. <laughs> because you basically, and you're slightly too young to have lived through it, but you still would have been involved with it. You went from one cricket culture that was basically thrown on the back of one bowler, which was Richard Hadley. And New Zealand yeah. cricket grew on the back of Richard Hadley. And you went straight to another cricket culture where Murali has done that. It's very interesting that you, but in both cases, you have teams that were fledgling. New Zealand had been playing cricket for a very long time, but hadn't been very good at it. Suddenly Hadley comes along and they really do become what I'd say they were probably the third best team of, of the 80s for a good period of the 80s. They were unlucky that they happened to come up against the greatest team probably of all time and also an incredible Pakistan team as well. Yeah, but New Zealand yeah. were a really, really good team based on Hadley. And then you go into Murali. It's interesting how these one bowlers have popped out, out of both of those cultures and both of them took such a high percentage of the wickets as well. Yeah, I think if you look at kind of uh, percentage of team wickets that they take in their careers, I think it's Murali and, and Hadley are like head and shoulders above everybody else. And particularly when it comes to wins, like to which extent teams relied on those bowlers to deliver them victories. Both of them have very similar stats and both of them have like stats that often dwarf everybody else in the field. When I was in New Zealand, my family was there in, in 99. Hadley was kind of a legend, but he was already kind of a distant-ish legend. Yep. What Hadley didn't necessarily have, Hadley had kind of Martin Crow alongside him, but Murley probably had a better kind of batting order to yeah. who would kind of put up these big scores that he would then defend. And Murley could win matches kind of even on flat tracks because, you know, Sanat or Arvinda or later Kumar and Mahela 
would help put up these big scores. Uh, whereas Hadley probably didn't quite have that support. Anyway, New Zealand of the 80s and, and Sri Lanka of the, the, the aughts and the late 90s, the scores are different. You know, New Zealand was a very low scoring kind mm. of country, whereas Sri Lanka was, was much higher scoring. It is fascinating. I also think, you know, Hadley is to some extent even more underrated in some ways than, than Morelli because he didn't have anyone of the quality of Vass at the other end. I mean, it was different eras as well. He came up in a time when so many New Zealand cricketers were like amateur, semi-professional. Mm. He was like the out-and-out professional in his team, just like way beyond anyone else in the, in the, in the side. And that would have been a, a fascinating thing as well. Very different personalities also, I think. He was always a complicated hero, wasn't he? I mean, even when you go back yes. to New Zealand now, it's, and I suppose that's another thing that I thought they might have in common because it's a huge thing for New Zealand to suddenly have the best bowler in the world. That's a yeah. huge thing being that, you know, it took them 39 years to win a test series, right? Suddenly you have the best bowler in the world. And Sri Lanka didn't have to wait as long, but for other reasons, their relationship with India, their relationship with England and countries like Australia, I think it was a huge deal for Sri Lanka to suddenly have the best bowler in the world, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was also, one thing was that Sri Lanka kind of uh, already took itself seriously after 96, of, you know, of which Murali wasn't necessarily the biggest player in that mm. team. He, you know, he contributed, but he wasn't like a, a, a... But Sri Lanka knew, I think, at that point that they could be the best in the world at this sport. There was that kind of understanding. What made Murali's legend incredible was just like the pure domination of the statistics, which Sri Lanka hadn't seen from any other player. You know, even Sanat and Aravind, the were very inconsistent. They didn't score match upon match upon match. Morley, every uh, innings, was taking wickets, was a threat, was creating opportunities. That kind of player Sri Lanka had never had. I remember everyone just being like, okay, this guy, he wasn't necessarily everybody's favorite player. I think we still loved as a, as a country or as particularly in the South, we still really loved Sanat Jaisuria just because of the way I think he made a lot of us feel. Uh, Arvind De Silva had said this kind of romance as well. But Murali's kind of relationship with Sri Lankan fans was more about, like, he's the best. Like, he's the best. He's not necessarily going to make, you know, has that emotional connection with anyone, but there's, like, more intellectual appreciation of him just being this great, great player. But he never set the nation alight in terms of, like, popularity. Sanat Jaisuria was, like, just rampantly, rampantly popular in this period. Arvind De Silva, very similar. Arjuna had his own thing going. Murali was kind of in there, but he was never, although he was clearly the best player in the team, he was never the most popular, most beloved, at least in the South, the parts of the country that I'm more familiar with. That's an incredible thing, though, isn't it? I'm trying to think of even Hadley, and Hadley was probably a more prickly character <laughs> to certain New Zealanders. Even with Martin Crow, I would have thought Hadley would have been the most popular player in New Zealand, other than a couple of key strongholds that Martin Crow would have had. So it does show you how complicated his ethnic background was, realistically, to Sri Lankan cricket fans. Yeah, and it, Sri Lanka's the kind of a country politically that's always in flux. And so when you have like someone with as a complex ethnic identity as Murali, the relationship with him is always going to be in flux as well. I mean, we see that the way the North thinks about Murali now compared to, or aspect parts of the North think about Murali now compared to what they thought about him in like 2002, for example, before he kind of entered political conversation too much. He was kind of beloved in, in Jaffna. He was, um, he'd go up there and play exhibition matches, uh, or at least did once. And uh, he was like absolutely floored by the love he got, whereas now that relationship is much more complicated. And probably even in the South, there probably were fluctuations of kind of love. And though it hasn't been as complex as his relationship with the North, there probably were kind of ups and downs there. 
the other thing with the personality wise is that Hadley, there's always kind of a little bit of equivocation from his former teammates when they speak about Hadley. They say amazing, amazing operator. But there's always a but coming somewhere. Like there's always a little bit of a, a but. I mean, certain uh, former New Zealand players have spoken about this in their autobiographies and so on. Uh, with Morley, it's not like that. Morley, there's kind of like, certainly among his former teammates, he's kind of like across the board. They find him really annoying. He's almost like a big kid. Like he'd just come and annoy you in the dressing room, just talk your head off. But there's also like a lot of underlying kind of love and admiration underneath that that's kind of the, the dominating feeling so personality wise yeah and and the way i guess because of circumstance i mean Murali mm. had it better than than hadley in lots of ways he didn't have to fight as hard for, for certain things and his team always backed him so he was always felt a, a certain level of gratefulness for his team for backing him with his issues with the biomechanics and, and the throwing kind of allegations Let's get into throwing because uh, that was mentioned once or twice in his career, if I think back to it. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a really interesting story, which I'm not sure. Um, we probably talked about privately, but I don't, I don't know how much you know about it. There was a guy called Troy Corbett who played for Victoria. I think he played in the 93-94 season, the season when Victorian Bush Rangers wore shorts because that was going to bring more people to the domestic cricket arena. And Troy Corbett took uh, a lot of wickets in a short period of time and had a list A bowling average of 11. And then Troy Corbett never played again. His list A average is still 11 as wow. a left-arm yeah. seamer. Sort of a strong left-arm seamer, the sort that Murali would have liked to bowl with, actually. And he disappeared completely. Cut to, you know, a year and a half later, MCG, Daryl Hare, and all the chucking. That is what used to happen to cricketers. What happened to Troy Corbett is what happened when you were a chucker. If I remember correctly, I don't think he was ever called in the game. And if he was, it was only one game and it wasn't a very big deal. And he just disappeared completely from cricket. And you saw that a lot in Australian cricket, in other cricket cultures as well. I think Australia is the most anti-chucking cricket nation of, of any place. But even so, that is something that you hear of stories in South Africa, in New Zealand, in England, in India. Guys come through with a bit of a dodgy action. Enough people talk about it and they just disappear. Yeah. That is a completely terrible situation to be in. He can't prove himself. Now we know that you can retrain yourself. That is when Murali came in, and everything happened with him, even if the system wasn't completely perfect, that's probably what always should have happened to Chuckers rather than what had happened previously. So in some ways, Murali actually helped change the game for a lot of people who were unfairly called Chuckers. Uh, you know, but ICC and cricket just wasn't prepared up until uh, Murali. And if it wasn't for the fact that Sri Lanka had backed him and then the Asian bloc had backed him, that wouldn't have happened. Murali would have just disappeared from the game. There's a kind of very famous bit of commentary when he's being called in the 96 Boxing Day match when, you know, uh, Bill Laurie and, and Tony Gregg are on the air and kind of Laurie uh, very immediately says, I think it's about chucking. And then Gregg's like, no, surely, Bill, it can't be. And then eventually he kind of gets on board as well. And I think there was probably real fear that this was the last time we were going to see Murali. What you had in that environment was kind of, Arjuna was the first person. And when Arjuna backs someone, he kind of like, he goes all in. He throws mm. all of his considerable weight behind <laughs> that thing. So I think like if Arjuna didn't back him at that point, there's no more morally, I don't think. I think Richie Benno and Ian Meckiff, I think Richie Benno basically just yanked Ian Meckiff and that was the end of Ian Meckiff's career for a similar thing. Whereas, and again, 
Think about it. Richie Benno is even bigger, not physically, but a bigger um, cricket figure at that point than Arjuna was. So Richie could have taken a stand, but he didn't. And other captains have been similar. So the fact that Arjuna was just like, no, this is our guy. We trust in him. And as you said, a lot of it is jingoist. And a lot for Arjuna would have been tactical as well. He's like, I'm not going to be able to find another guy who can bowl like this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of it would have been tactical. The one thing I would say Arjuna probably knew is that Morley's elbow doesn't straighten. So mm-hmm. where we, the public, would not necessarily have known that, yeah. Arjuna would have played with this guy for long enough to know that there was something messed up about his elbow. And so with that information, whether that's enough just to definitively say someone's chucking or not, but he at least kind of had something to throw science-wise at this problem and kind mm. of had a case to argue. So that probably helped Arjuna make that decision. But there certainly didn't seem to be any doubt that he would make it in the aftermath of it. He was just like absolutely morally. And, you know, you see Arjuna kind of fought Morley's proxy wars for years after, even after mm. he'd retired. Someone would say something as Morley, Arjuna would come out years after Arjuna's own retirement. Like the bat signal. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> that Arjuna's like tiff with Shane Warne is kind of like legendary at this point. So in a lot of ways, Morley just came around at just the right moment in time, just when biomechanics had got to the stage mm. where they could do these kinds of experiments just when the asian brock was just getting enough heft internationally uh, administratively to make these points and to be taken seriously just when sri lanka had this captain who had the personal makeup to back him so a lot of stars aligned for more as un- unlucky as he was in some ways they were also he, he kind of got the perfect conditions to fight his battle in and he was fortunate that it happened at that point in time. When you say the biomechanics, that is very true. And the way we thought about it was very different. I'll get to that in a moment. But they had actually done things in cricket a long time before. So Jack Marsh, the indigenous cricketer, almost 100 years before mm-hmm. Murali, had bowled with splints on his arm, basically, to prove that he wasn't straightening his arm. So people had tried to prove it before. It's just that oh, wow. it was such a stigma. I mean, the, the perfect thing for me is that Murali is still seen as a controversial figure within cricket his wicket total, and there are still people that don't like it. And yet Shane Warne was done on a match-fixing charge and on a drugs charge and doesn't have the same stigma. That's how much the conversation around chucking is so ridiculous, especially when, when you think about it, it is just a no ball. Like the best way, eventually what we will get to in cricket and through the biomechanics, hopefully, is every cricketer who bowls in a top-level game will have something on their arms and will be able to tell if they bent their arm for that particular ball, and that ball will be called a no-ball because the other Mm -hmm. five balls in that over may not have been no-balls. That's actually the way that we're eventually going to have to get to it. Without what happened with Murali, I don't think that happens. And that was the first time in history that Pilcom, which is the 96 World Cup, through to India taking over realistically and the big three um, being involved. That was the first time in, in history that all those cricket countries got together and flexed their muscles. And they flexed it within 15 degrees. So I couldn't help myself with that. I don't know why. <laughs> but but essentially, it was a really, really interesting time within cricket because up until then, even if the other countries had a vote and the veto had disappeared... Basically, what England and Australia had said still sort of was the defining factor. Murali became a really uh, an incredible moment where uh, suddenly you realise that the power of cricket had shifted. It was a flashpoint of kind of these traditional powers and these kind of burgeoning ones. A little bit of background is that this is the way that the Sri Lankan board thought about it at the time. We need to get white scientists on this. That's a genuine conversation that they had. Does anyone know any white scientists? Do you have the phone number of some white scientists? (laughs) 
<laughs> I can imagine like the newspaper ad that they put out, like scientists. <laughs> but that's what they thought. They were like, we need to get white scientists on this. And like, because we're making this case to kind of people who are disinclined to believe, because there was a Sri Lankan doctor who was working in Singapore at the time who looked at Murali and said, like, he obviously has a 35 degree angle flex, but they didn't really get anywhere with that conversation, like, because he's just seen as like a, a morally compatriot, although he was a doctor and he was like putting the weight of his kind of medical training and, and expertise behind it, they didn't get anywhere. So they're like, okay, we need to get him seen in the West, particularly in Australia, by as many kind of Australian experts. And that's the way they went about it. They're like, let's just go full bore down this science route. And then the ICC itself started up a process of, of kind of working out scientifically how much elbows were flexing at the, at the point of delivery. So we got to that stage, and I think I'm Sri Lanka's board, I think probably at the time, rare as it is that we give them credit for anything, uh, they probably played that one pretty well. Like They knew what political kind of notes to hit, and they also knew that going down the science route was probably the, the going to yield the best results. And by that stage, by the early 2000s, it had become clear that this is the biggest match winner our team. And he is going to be the biggest match winner on our team for the next five, six years. So this is someone that's worth protecting. And at that point, it had got way beyond Arjuna. Everyone was kind of throwing their weight behind Morley at that point. He does go on to be the great bowler at that point and incredible, even in T20 cricket, when that comes along, he's still a very good bowler. Where's the 800 on the back of his shirt, which just doesn't scan very nicely on a shirt, but I'd probably wear it too if I was him. Later, though, he becomes a political symbol again because of a conversation he has with UK Prime Minister Dave Cameron. Can you take me through that and how that played out in Sri Lanka? Yeah, so this happened kind of after he retired. So this is in 2003, Sri Lanka hosted this uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, kind of a controversial event because it was kind of seen as, at least in, you know, in the UK and, and a lot of international press, the Rajapaksa regime was seen as, as being very controversial because they'd been accused of war crimes and they were hosting this thing. And so David Cameron goes to the north and he sees people, especially kind of uh, northern mothers, protesting, demonstrating about the fact that their kids um, or their husbands or, or their sons or sometimes their daughters had just disappeared in the war and no one had ever given them any answers for it. And so Murali at the time is trying to get as much out of this for his charity, which is the Foundation of Goodness, something he'd been involved in for you know over a decade at this point. And it's an incredible charity, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I genuinely cannot think of another living cricketer who has kind of made as much of a difference in so many people's lives as Murali's charity. I mean, it's not just his charity. I think Kumail Mahela is sort of involved as well. And Kushal Gunasekar, the director, is the one who, who runs it. But they do a lot of work and a lot of genuine work in various parts of Sri Lanka. And so he was trying to drum up a little bit of awareness and support for his charity and then he ended up being interviewed by Jon Snow of, of Channel 4. In that interview, he said, essentially, that David Cameron has been misled. And the word misled was, uh, was something that I think Channel 4, from the, the sound of the interview, wanted to have kind of as a soundbite. And uh, Morley, I will kind of defend him slightly. I'll, I'll lay out the, the slight defenses in Morley's defense. He's not very good in English, even now. It's his third language. And then he was kind of, as the interview went on, it felt like he was being pushed into that gully of saying that specific word about the issue. However, Murali at this stage is a very, very well-versed interviewee. Mm -hmm. And he's someone who 
has kind of seen the full gamut of Sri Lankan politics, seen the full gamut of how Sri Lankan politics is seen in the North and the South, overseas, in the West and various parts of the world. And he should have known better either to not get into this conversation at all or to say something that was going to be obviously incendiary for sometimes very good reasons. Like, you know, things did happen. People have genuine grievances. And plenty of the Northerners um, who took offense or took issue with this made the point that, you know, Murali is not a child. You know, no matter what the journalist is doing, Murali yeah. should be able to, to handle himself. And it doesn't matter if it's his fifth language. You know, it doesn't matter. He should either have kept his mouth shut or, or not waded into this. So that is when I think like there was a serious souring of that relationship between Murali and, and uh, the Northern and Eastern Thomas particularly. Not all of them, but, you know, certain aspects of them. The other thing to understand is that, so for example, in Jaffna, which is kind of seen as like the intellectual hub of the Tamil North, there's kind of all sorts of elitist concerns as well. And Murali's community being like of lower caste, generally much poorer, much more recent arrivals in Sri Lanka, speak a much more common kind of form of Tamil than Northerners who speak a much more classical Tamil. Murali's community always feels looked down upon by Northern and Eastern Tamils. And so there's all sorts of things at play here. I think Murali did make mistakes, but the way he was pounced upon exposes an aspect of like intra-Tamil kind of relations and he became an easy target. If he was like a Jaffna boy from an elite family, I'm not sure that he would necessarily, even if he'd made those kinds of comments, he would have been pounced upon in, with quite the same kind of venom. But I completely kind of, I think, you know, I personally, and Murali's had a political life since then. In June or July this year, he got on stage with like an outright Singhala nationalist, like someone who I would describe as a racist. And uh, that's kind of indefensible. I mean, why does Murali need to be sharing a dais with these kinds of people, giving them any kind of credibility? So there are many indefensible things that Murali has done from a political perspective. But you also have to understand the context from which he comes. You can't expect him, there is kind of an expectation of him at times to be like this voice of the Tamils, but like of which Tamils? You can't expect him to represent a community that at times hasn't represented him that well. You know, there's this kind of idea of the Tamil cause, but you know, which Tamil cause? There's a lot of nuance and complexity here that Murali has to deal with and that is kind of whole story is, is wrapped up in. Well, it's also quite interesting in that, you know, there was a film that was going to be made of him and then there was such a backlash against some of the uh, the stuff that you've talked about that the uh, yeah. the lead actor, uh, you know, eventually pulled out of that movie. So there's a lot going on. There's also, it's quite interesting, you know, looking at Jaffna. Uh, you wrote a great piece about Jaffna cricket a few years ago. And we know in Sri Lanka that if Murali was the greatest athlete and, and well, the cricketers are the most famous athletes and perhaps one of the most famous athletes you've had from outside of cricket is um, someone called Tajini, who is a six foot 11 netball player uh, who went on to play professional netball in Australia. And realistically, yeah. had she not been from Jaffna, would probably be in the WNBA now and uh, making a lot of money playing basketball in China or in America and Australia and places like that. So he was lucky in some ways, even if he was born into a poor community, to be from a, an area where he could actually go on to play cricket. But a lot of guys who are Tamil Sri Lankans just haven't had the opportunity to play cricket for Sri Lanka up until, well, hopefully up until the, the future. This is absolutely true. I think because essentially Sri Lanka was two states at the time. I mean, there was the LTT-controlled areas and the government-controlled areas. So, And the LTT-controlled areas were run as their own kind of separate administrative and political state. And so there were lots of cricketers in Jaffna in the, in the 90s and the late 80s 
who kind of were unable to take their cricket anywhere because, you know, the LTT control areas didn't have a cricket team. Sports was not something that they kind of, they kind of tolerated it, but didn't really um, back it or, or give it any importance, I guess, because at the time, you know, militarily, that was where their focus was. And there was a host of cricketers and, and Jaffna is somewhere that has kind of a, a very proud and intense like cricket history. I mean, there, there are serious cricketing rivalries up there between some of the schools. At the time, you know, there were very few other kind of entertainment things. So the city of Jaffna would turn out for these big school matches and they would be very, very well supported. There would be like the big kind of social and uh, things that were happening in that city at the time. There were a few big stars to come out of them. One by the name of uh, M. Khandipan, who, was, who played for, I think, St. John's College, Jaffna. He was just like this huge, larger than this a story that he once hooked us a six from the Jaffna Central College ground and it hit the clock tower on the roundabout outside the ground, right? Like there are stories like that, like these amazing stories about how good he was. He was an all-rounder. But then when they got to the age of 19, when they were, you know, trying to move from school cricket into senior cricket, they weren't allowed to leave the LTT controlled area. And even if they did leave, like it was so difficult for a Northern Tunnel to establish themselves in the South. So you're absolutely right. Murali being from Kandy, which has always been, although not the main cricket hub of Sri Lanka, has always kind of been in Sri Lanka's cricket sphere. Yeah. He was able to kind of get the kind of coaching that he needed at a young age. Coaches were able to spot him, give him facilities, give him opportunities, let him play in the teams that he needed to play in to hone his skills. Northerners did not get any of those facilities or any of those opportunities. I want you to throw ahead a little bit here. In 50 years' time, when you are still tottering into press boxes with accreditation, even though you no longer write anymore, a bit of a beer belly, well, not a beer belly, but an arak belly, you get to go on and speak about cricket, even though you don't really watch the game anymore. You've got your 17 novels or whatever else it is that you've been doing, and you're a respected figure. So that people ask you, how do you think, looking back, is Murali's legend going to grow and grow as Sri Lanka changes as a country? Or will it always have these complications and these asterisks just because of everything about the man, some of which was his fault and a lot of which had nothing to do with him? I think eventually, the thing is like politics become irrelevant more quickly in some ways than like the kind of sporting achievements that he's done. And I'm not sure that Murali now having had this experience with will necessarily like go full steam ahead with whatever politics he decides to have. I don't, I'm not sure. I think, I suspect that he'll take a little bit of a step back and kind of reevaluate things. So I don't think that his political legacy is substantial enough to make such an impact on his legacy that in 50 years' time, we're still talking about his politics. I'm not sure that, you know, the long lens of history only has kind of room for so many things. But we will always have an appreciation for his record for what he did on the cricket field. I think those things will stand the test of time more than these other kind of complicating factors about him. Because whatever, you know, his 800 may still be standing in 50 years time, um, possibly not, but it's not inconceivable that it's still standing. And the fact that he played such a vital role in, in this period in, in Sri Lanka cricket, and also the fact that, you know, much more has and will be written about and spoken about his cricket than his politics anyway, I think. Those kinds of concerns that are specific and particular for right now where Sri Lanka is, we don't know what kind of nation it will become, but I don't think it will become the kind of nation where his politics drowns out the vast majority of what he spent his life doing, which is bowling and taking wickets. Even during his career when he was the best bowler in the world and arguably the best cricketer of the world at times as well, 
He wasn't Sri Lanka's favorite cricketer. He will be remembered, though, as Sri Lanka's greatest cricketer unless an absolute freak comes along. Yeah, I mean, this is really strange. So I don't know that he's even now thought of as the greatest cricketer that Sri Lanka's ever produced. I'm not sure that that's true. Your country is wrong, if that is the case. <laughs> I know that's wrong. I think everyone who follows and like enjoys test cricket and knows 800 is just a ridiculous number. And the number of tests that Morley kind of won off his own back, the expectations that were there on him in every game, in every series, and his like consistent and ridiculous ability to meet and often exceed those expectations for such a long period of time. Those are things that I think people who uh, are within, the, I think, I mean, within the cricket establishment, there's no, there's no doubt. Like no one within cricket thinks that anyone is close to Morley, you know, as much as everyone loves Kumar Sanjukara or, uh, or Sanat or Arvinda, I don't think there's any debate there. But occasionally you come across these kind of internet polls or whatever, who was Sri Lanka's greatest cricketer and they're on Facebook. And Morley is like third or fourth behind, you know, three or four other players. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's going on here? So the other thing is like, he's not like Shane Warne who go up and constantly talk about his achievements and push himself when mm. he doesn't really have an agent who does that either. You know, Morley's retired and kind of, he runs an aluminium can factory. That's what takes up most of his life now. So for those reasons, I think like he hasn't had good PR. But yeah, I think there's also like still this romance about, uh, especially about Jai Surya and like uh, the World Cup kind of victory that he and Arvinda together kind of are seen as having produced. But then also the crazy records. And I think that, uh, for fans who grew up around me, for like kids that I grew up with, they still love, I mean, Jai Surya is still seen as kind of the gold standard of, of Sri Lankan cricket. Even now, yeah, I don't think that he's seen in Sri Lanka as the greatest player that's that's ever been. He's seen as like a very important player and, and kind of has that prestige, but not the sort of emotional love that you would expect for, for someone who's done what he has. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics, like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil Dolavira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil Dolavira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams.